Welcome to the Brinkman Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the family audio drama, The Brinkman Adventures. We're so glad that you could join us for this episode. I'm Eric Schilder. And I'm Sarah Boltman. And I hope you had a chance to listen to the last podcast episode. If not, pause this one, go listen to the other one, because otherwise you'll be totally lost. Uh, We were actually talking about an episode from season two. It was The Mystery Ring. And uh, our guest was Mr. Charles Boltman, uh, the father of Sarah and Ian. And uh, so we were talking about uh, Mr. Boltman's kind of journey through uh, a little bit of a crisis in faith revolving around the story of creation as told in the Bible versus we'll call it evolutionary science. And so uh, joining us online, we're going to continue on with that because it was such a neat conversation. Uh, Joining us online is Mr. Charles Boltman. Thank you for uh, coming back. Thanks for having me. We're so excited. I'm going to geek out a little bit on (laughs) some science things. And uh, we talked just a little bit uh, before the podcast amongst ourselves about sort of one of the the big questions. You mentioned how you were sort of in this state of, what do you call it, theistic? um, Theistic evolution. Theistic evolution, basically the idea that, well, God used evolution as the way to create things. And in that way, you kind of got to be able to sleep uh, some nights. Right. But you, you can't maintain that for too long because you're confronted with some pretty, some pretty hard facts. So the question that we're going to start off with is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, you can maintain a theistic evolution position only if you don't study science very well and if you don't study your Bible very well. If you avoid studying those two, you can hang on to it. But once you really start studying it, you begin to see they're not compatible. When you start the scripture out, and here God is introducing himself to mankind, and we're told by some that these things are allegories or the words don't really mean what... They're poetry. Yeah. (laughs) So I, I thought about it, you know, what kind of a person who is trying to communicate to somebody the most important information they're ever going to have in their life. And they send them this really nice letter and they start the whole thing out with a bunch of stuff that's not true and, and makes them try to figure out what it might mean. And yet this is supposed to be the most crucial communication at all. This is person's ever going to get. So that doesn't go with that character of God at all. So the, if you could take those verses out, you might be able to pull it off. But since those verses are in there and God revealed exactly what he did, now you have to do something with it. And if you're going to end up uh, allegorizing them, then you have a Bible that you really can't trust that words mean what they say. And now you open the door to everything. So you're, you're in trouble. Exactly. It's either all trustworthy or none of it is. And there's a group out there that maintains theistic evolution, and they claim that God set it up so that you would not be able to detect God in the creation at all. There's no designer detectable in there. And that gets them to a big fight with the intelligent design people that say, well, we aren't talking about the Bible, but when we look at, at nature, we see it's all full of design. And so those two groups don't get along with each other. And it's just kind of interesting that the theistic evolutionists would say you can't see design in nature. And yet here we have Paul saying in 
in Romans, it's there for people to see, so you're without excuse. Right. So it, it doesn't work for that. The other thing is that the story, the evolutionary story, in order for it to work, it has to agree with the data that we find out in the world. Does it really you know, explain reality as we know it? And there are so many different things that it doesn't. I'll just give an example. That, you know, the Big Bang, that's where everybody's got to start. And when I talk about that, my, my subtitle for the talk is Everybody Needs a Miracle. <laughs> and if you study the Big Bang, it ends in a miracle. Because what they're going to do is eventually get to talking about, well, the Big Bang really wasn't the beginning. It's really just one of many bangs. And there's an infinite number of them. And ours happens to be the one where we just got lucky. And so then you ask the question, it was, well, how does that work? I mean, how does this <laughs> universe-making machine work? And they will say, well, it's not explainable with the physics that we have today. And the response to that is, well, then your physics is not natural. Right. It's supernatural. Yeah. So guess where we are? We just ended up in a miracle. And so everybody, if you push them and you get them to answer questions, you will eventually get them to a point where they say, well, it just happened. Well, okay, that's a miracle. Right. I exactly. Wow. I. That's always one of the, the things that, you know, going back to sort of the cosmic level of things, which is, well, okay, Big Bang started. Well, we had this singularity of infinitely dense matter. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from the, the one before. Well, where did that one come from? You know, so the, yeah. they have no problem saying something's infinite. They have no problem saying that something is everlasting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, the, the, or, or that is beyond, if you will, the natural laws that they themselves have established. They just don't mm -hmm. like the idea that it's a, a, a holy God. Uh, I think that's, that's the thing. Right. You're going to have to let go of the scripture um, in many different places in order to hang on to the evolutionary view. And that's yeah. the, what people don't get. They think you can just lightly hang on to both, but you can't. That's why I said if you study either of them very well, you're going to discover they're incompatible. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, you know, this reminds me just a little bit of the journey I went through in this, too. I grew up going with my dad, helping him do these presentations. So I would be in my early teens, a little bit later teens, helping him set up the presentation, listening for hours to him talk about this. But I went through a season in my life where I thought, well, maybe this isn't even true. I went through um, two years of doubting. Is God even real? evolution actually makes sense to me, you know, and it, it was interesting having grown up in that and then really questioning it all at a very deep level. And um, I think it's it's fascinating because what happened to me during that time was the world turned gray. It's like I would look at the, the clouds in the sky and all this beauty that to me used to say, I'm loved. Like this design means God is so good. And, mm -hmm. and, and it just was nothing. It was empty. There was like this empty void. And I think so many people are afraid to say God's real. They don't want to go to creation because then they're responsible. Right. And then God is there. But it was so interesting from the other direction, feeling that flip of what if God isn't here? And just the emptiness, the sadness, the 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 meaninglessness of beauty even. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting how people don't want to take creation seriously or the six days or God did it. But when they do, when they really fully except that God created this in six days. There was no death in his plan. No. He's good. I mean, it, 
it makes nature just sing to you and speak to you in deep ways. I'm just grateful that that you have been so persistent in holding this up to people. Um, and it has really deeply impacted my life. A question I want to ask is the age of the earth, because we we hear a lot about, like I mentioned earlier, the earth keeps getting progressively yeah. older yeah. and older because they need more and more time to try to make this mess work. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of the young earth point of view? Sure, I'd be happy to. Yeah, and evidences would be awesome. Well, stuff that they're discovering recently is is just really really well supporting the biblical account. For instance, they're finding undecayed tissue in the bones of dinosaurs that are supposed to be a hundred and some millions years old, 65 for some of them, hundred and something for others. And they're finding blood vessels and cartilage and blood cells and collagen and DNA. And that stuff should never last that long. And yet there it is. And it's not just in one dinosaur, it's in lots of them. So that's the first one. Uh, another thing that indicates it can't be very old is if you go to the Grand Canyon and you look at the layers, mm -hmm. they're all in, they're all pancaked. You don't see valleys cut in each layer and then the next layer laid over the top and filling the valley. They're just pancakes, one on top of the other. The only way you can get that is if there's no time between the deposition of those layers. So those layers, which are thick, like we're talking miles thick, how do you get miles thick of sediment dumped one after another after another with no erosion in between and no time in between? You're not right. going to do that over millions of years because you're going to get all sorts of stuff happening between the layers. Another one is that the radioactive dating using radiocarbon. Right. Radiocarbon is only workable on things that are under 100,000 years old, theoretically. And if you tried to date a million-year-old object that had carbon in it, it should have no carbon-14 left because the stuff decays. It just disappears. It turns into nitrogen gas and goes away. So an, a number of creationists got together and they got samples from the U.S. repository for coal seams. There, there are samples in barrels that are sealed. Um, I believe it's the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, anyway, they sent these out and had them radiocarbon dated, and they all came back to be within just five or 6,000 years old of each other. And the, the date doesn't come out to be 6,000 years total. It comes out to be in the 40,000-year range, and that's really not a problem for us because when you figure that these dates are from layers that are supposed to be all the way from 60 million years old up to 320 million years old, and they all came out to be about 42 to 46,000 years old. It tells you that all of those layers were laid down at the same time. Mm -hmm. And whether the absolute date of the 42,000 is right or not is, is handleable from a young earth perspective because the amount of C14 in the air back in those days before the flood was probably less than it is now. And there's reasons that could explain it, but we don't want to do that in this podcast probably. Because <laughs> you'd need a whiteboard, right? Well, I'd need a lot, yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, even diamonds um, are radioactive dating at 50,000 years. Mm -hmm. So it just makes no millions of years position workable because the C14 dating, which they claim is so great, turns out to be showing that things are thousands of years old, not millions of years old. Do I think the Earth is, is 10,000 or 40,000 years old? No, I think it's about six and... The longer I study this stuff, the more I come away saying, 
this stuff is so obviously young and it is so obviously designed that any naturalistic answer to it is ludicrous. Right. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of science fiction. And uh so that's how I knew that that evolution was was fiction. Uh I think <laughs> but one of the things that I always point out to my kids uh we were talking about this before with the Nebraska man thing mm-hmm. where I was taught in high school uh Okay, here's Nebraska man. He had these kind of burial rituals. He ate this kind of food. Uh, this was his uh, marriage society, all these kinds of things. And then later found out that it was all based on the finding of like one tooth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they take one thing and they keep using, you know, a, a form of syllogism to keep pushing it and pushing it. Well, if this, then this. If this, then this. And they've totally lost the plot. You know, I I don't know if you're into the into just the science aspect, or do you do like the anthropology as well? You mean that the ape men claims and all of yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I dig into that. The latest book out on that is Contested Bones by uh, John Sanford, and when he gets done with it, you look at it and and you realize that even using the evolutionist dates, which are putting artifacts and tools and bones. And you put them on their timeline, mm-hmm. and it turns out that the human stuff is actually older than the supposed ancestors of us, which is uh, Australopithecines. They're contemporaneous. So all we have is a bunch of apes living at the same time people did. Mm-hmm. And almost all of these things are actually post-flood fossils. So when you start thinking that, you're talking about stuff that's only about 4,000, 4,500 years old. Yeah. And they're trying to get millions of years out of the stuff. Uh, no, no, it's not working. And the things that are, to, to me, most stunning right now for me personally is looking at the biochemistry and the nanomachines that they're discovering mm-hmm. that are running our bodies. And when I look at those things and I look at those little walking machines that are carrying things from the inside of the cell towards the outside, yeah. they're walking just like little feet. And and then the, the flagellar motor, which is spinning so fast, and it's got all these parts of an outboard motor. And I was just reading about our cells. They have a, you know, they have a cell membrane around them to keep them together because you really don't have a cell if you take its membrane off. It's just a bunch of chemicals floating around. So you have to have that membrane on. But as soon as you do that, you kill your cell because you have to get water in and out. So then you mm-hmm. have to have a, a water channel that goes through it. But the problem is when water goes through that, if you just allow it to go through, it's going to carry protons with it. And the protons will neutralize the negative charge inside the cell, and the cell can't do metabolism, and the cell dies. So you have to figure out a way to not allow the protons to sneak in along with the water. So, hey, there's a water channel. There's two particular amino acids right in the middle of it. When the water comes in, the uh, two amino acids grab the water, and they flip it so it's disconnected from the other water that's coming in behind it and the protons can't make the trip through that little junction. And so the waters are released one at a time into the cell and the positive charges, the protons can't get through. You don't have things like that come by themselves. They have to be thought up early. You have to understand the problem. You have to block this from getting into there. Otherwise your cell dies. A cell membrane is not simple. The thing is terribly complicated. And that's one cell. Yeah. Wow. Let alone talking about like an eyeball. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's the. I remember having a conversation with the. I'm a, 
I'm a software developer, and of course, you know, software developers like to think that they're very, you know, they're very logical and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And I remember talking with a, a fellow programmer, and he was talking about, well, it's very simple. You know, you got a got a fish, and and, and he starts getting a big fin, and and I I stopped him there, and I said, well, at some point, you got a you got a fish that can neither swim nor walk, and that's going to be the first guy eaten. <laughs> That's true. You know, yeah. and he's not going to pass <laughs> along duck. his genes, yeah. you know. Uh, so, you know, and he he brought up computer models and he says, well, we've, we've demonstrated. I'm like, yeah, but it just the computer didn't come together by chance or program itself by chance. Yeah. I said, you know, there's that intelligent design. You created them to do this. If you go online and listen to a world class chemist, his name is Dr. James Tour. He's a completed Jew, and his job is synthetic, uh, organic synthetic chemistry. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to him, he says there is no evidence at all that any of this could ever happen. There is no progress on naturalistic origin of life. You can't get a membrane. You cannot get the, the DNA. And everything that you've been hearing is fallacious. He says, I'm a chemist. I'm the right guy to ask the question. And we are nowhere near finding any way for this ever to happen. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about, because um, you mentioned DNA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, DNA is, is, has been hot ever since I was a kid as far as sort of this magical thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the sort of the fingerprints you see in DNA and, and why that kind of speaks against evolutionary science kind of the story? Well, I was out and found a puddle out in the Badlands. It had a lot of clay in the puddle that dried up. Mm-hmm. And it made little shards at the bottom. It all cracked up, you know, when you get these little shards. Yeah. And if I took a bunch of them and said, okay, I got a, I got a proto house right here. I mean, this is the beginning of a brick. Um, the problem isn't the brick. The problem is the windows and where everything's going to go. And so it's the information that's needed to make the house, not what the house is made out of that's so important. Mm-hmm. And the DNA, if you could figure out a way to make DNA, you wouldn't be any closer to explaining life because the DNA is just the repository for the information about life. And somebody's got to write that stuff on the DNA. Right. And it's like a book. So I found ink, I found paper, um, but I don't have a novel. And I... I need information from somebody that thinks in order to make a novel. So that's, that's kind of where we are with all of that. We know that the DNA has the information on it. And now we're finding that there's more and more stuff in the cell beyond the DNA, which is actually controlling a whole lot of stuff. The proteins are controlling it. It's got the uh, outside sugars on the cell are controlling it. The electricity in the cell is controlling it. There's a lot of stuff beyond DNA that now we're discovering is actually running what's going on in the cell. So I, I look at DNA and I just marvel at that stuff. And, and now we know that there's something called epigenetics, which is the, uh, the tweaking of DNA that happens, that we go through stress in our own lives. And if we're going through that at the time that we conceive children, we are passing on certain clues and cues on their DNA to the next generation. And those things will hang out for two to three generations, we know now. It's actually just modifying the DNA, not actually changing the letters of it. It's just modifying what can be expressed, what cannot be expressed. It's just awesome, all of the, the complexity which is built into it. And it's, it's a stunning, stunning thing. There are multiple, multiple layers of uh, information and code 
in the DNA and in the cell itself. That is very cool. That is so amazing. You know, as I'm listening to you, Dad, it really strikes me just the amount of depth of knowledge of science that you have. And I think about a lot of people who have just taken evolutionary science as faith value. You know, I guess we got to believe it. I'll mash it up somehow with my faith. I'm not sure, but just try. And um, Mm -hmm. when they hear someone talking about, no, we can believe Genesis six days. God did it. You know, a lot of times um, people look at that position and say, well, you don't know the science. You're just standing on scripture and you, Mm -hmm. you haven't done all the research. You're just saying, believe the Bible. Why aren't you studying this? Well, I am just struck. I mean, you could talk for 17,000 hours almost about the scientific parts, and yet you've come to the conclusion that it's young. It's young. The Bible is true. We can we can stand there. Oh, yeah. And if anyone is just kind of toying with this idea or, or even maybe rethinking it, what, what would be some first three books for them to dive into? If they really want some answers um, that have some depth to them, then I would suggest a book called Evolution's Achilles Heels. That's A-C-H-I-L-L-E-S apostrophe heels by uh, Creation Ministries International. And that hits everything. I mean, the whole gamut is is hit in that book. It looks like it's, it's about uh, 250 pages. And that will hit all the stuff we've talked about today is going to be in there. If you want it more of a, a leisurely book, then you get something called the Answers Book by uh, – uh, answers in Genesis people, Ken Ham. They have an answers book one, two, three, and four. It covers so many of the questions that people have. And then if you want to take evolution on directly, there's a book called Refuting Evolution 2 by Jonathan Sarfati of Creation Ministries International. And that's a, a great book to refute the things that the biological community has come out with to try and convince biology teachers that they need to teach all these Christian kids that they're wrong and they need to push evolution in the, in the public school. And that's what the, that they had done. And this book refutes the work that they had done and sent. And I remember getting it. They sent it to all the biology teachers in the United States. We will have the links to those books in our show notes. So you can find those there for sure. And, um, yeah, Answers in Genesis is a great resource. That you, There's all kinds of stuff there that you can look at. And, um, yeah, it's a big topic, and it's just yeah, we didn't even Yeah, we didn't even get to the flood. No. Or Tower of ba- or any of those things. Oh, I'm so disappointed. But um, <laughs> well, come to my thing this coming weekend. I'm going to cover all that stuff oh, that's next week. Hey, uh, speaking of that, where where would someone get in touch with you if they were interested in maybe having you come and either speak or, you know, teach one of your classes. Obviously, it's a it's a, both a passion and a mystery that you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, how could they get in touch with you? We have a website, creationfirst.org, and uh, there's a link there, which is contact us, and uh, that'll get an email right to my phone. And uh, we do this because, as you said, this is our reason for living now. Yeah. I hate deception. And uh, this thing about truth that has bugged me all of my life, which makes it impossible to sell a used car to anybody. I have to run them until they're dead. (laughs) Um, So the truth thing is that I I can't stand um, to see people deceived. And I don't know why. I just, that's, that's been in me all of my life. And to see fraud and deception just drives me nuts. So this whole thing about creation and evolution just fell right into that thing. And I just, I really didn't have a choice. I had to figure this out. Yeah, and I had to see wh- where the deception is and and where it isn't. And I really uh, enjoy doing this. We have a, a little bitty 
motorhome, and we can go places with that. And uh, the best way to actually do this is to not have one event, but is to have a series of things uh, one after another so you can build on it like I'm going to do next week. We're going to have six in a row. Right. Um, and I'm going to do a, a, a Christian school, and I usually do about 12 sessions there, about an hour each. And those are only sixth graders. And one of the things that I, I, want, I learned in the public school uh, when I had special ed kids is that I shouldn't talk about anything they can't see. Yeah. So I try to do everything visual, uh, a combination of video, audio, slides, uh, video clips that I get everywhere, uh, everything I can come up with so that what I'm talking about you can see. And I, I've been told by others that, strangely enough, that uh, we can engage sixth graders all the way up to 80-year-olds at the same time in the same meeting. And they stay connected. And you've been speaking at a, a couple of universities as well. Yeah, I just did Cornerstone University's, one of their biology classes a couple of weeks ago. It's been so neat over the years watching your ministry grow, Dad, and I I agree. I mean, your presentations are super engaging and um, fast-paced, but because you have so much um, visual and hands-on and a lot of analogies, it makes it very understandable um, and fun. So I, I would recommend anybody, if you have a Sunday school class or even a church um, or a homeschool group, have him come. It's well worth it, and um, you will learn a lot and be really encouraging your faith. And we've been encouraged here, and we could go on and on for a bunch more episodes, <laughs> we but can. maybe we'll leave something for your seminars, I guess. <laughs> Good uh, idea. <laughs> well, we thank you so much, uh, Mr. Boltman, for, for being on our show, and you, you've, you've, you've made it a wonderful time, and I've really enjoyed talking with you. So we've, of course, got to wrap it up here. And if you've got any questions or uh, want to know more, Check us out at uh, BrinkmanAdventures.com and leave a comment. Um, like us on uh, what is, on, on iTunes. Uh, that's what Sarah's mouthing at me. <laughs> iTunes. Uh, you know, leave a, leave a review or get in touch or, or tell us your own story or, you know, especially ones involving this would be kind of neat to, to hear some people's journeys on, on where they went. But uh, that's all we have for this time, and we look forward to talking with you next time. Bye.